The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. There was no good data that high-dose colchicine was any better than low-dose colchicine in treating acute gout. But the big difference between the American College of Rheumatology and the American College of Physicians guidelines, so to speak, is, is really what's the data showing that you need to treat to target? Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today we're going to discuss the management of acute and recurrent gout, a clinical practice guideline from the American College of Physicians. This article appeared in the January 3rd issue 2017. There's an accompanying editorial titled, To Treat or Not to Treat, to Target, in Gout. Our guest today is Dr. Robert McLean, who is currently the president-elect of the American College of Physicians. He's a practicing rheumatologist and internist in Connecticut and on the teaching faculty at Yale University. He was a member of the ACP Guidelines Committee when this guideline was developed. The highlight for this you've already gotten a clue to from the intro We're going to talk about the treatment of acute gout uh, and the different options and work on understanding the controversy about how much we should uh, give of uric acid-lowering agents. I hope you enjoy this podcast. So welcome, Robert. Well, thank you, Bob. Um, So what I want to do is I want to go through some of the recommendations uh, of this guideline and get your opinions Uh, and I'm really interested in what you actually do in your practice. So the first recommendation was that clinicians could choose either corticosteroids, non-steroidals, or colchicine for acute gout. And in the corollary, in recommendation number two, they talk about uh, how clinicians should use relatively low-dose colchicine to what I was taught back in the 70s when you had acute gout. So, patient comes in with gout, uh, and you're going to treat them. Tell me how you decide between uh, these three drugs, which, which patients should get which ones, and when you're using colchicine, why we use this new strategy for colchicine. Sure. Well, thanks, Bob. So, um, I think the first consideration to keep in mind is, does the person really have gout or not? And as, as you know, there were two clinical guidelines papers that came out. One was on management of gout, and the other was on diagnosis of gout. And for the most part, the information in the diagnosis of gout guideline is not nearly as controversial, but uh, the guidelines committee wanted to address aiming it more at a primary care internal medicine uh, audience of how do you really know someone has gout or not? And I think just to kind of cover that quickly, the gold standard really is do you see uh, gout crystals that are being ingested by white cells in someone's synovial fluid? Sometimes it's not always easy to get synovial fluid. And so 
the reality of practices that we sometimes empirically treat someone who has a big hot base of the first big toe, what Hippocrates called podagra, and we say this is gout until proven otherwise to some extent. And as long as they don't have some other major risk factors for an infection like a diabetic foot or something, most of the time we're usually pretty right with some of our clinical judgment. So on the assumption that someone has what looks like classical gout there or somewhere else that we have no reason to doubt it's something else, the question is, uh, how, how do we treat them? And um, going back and looking at the, the data and the studies, there was really, uh, I think, a feeling that the data showed, when you look at high-quality data, that um, all three of the medications mentioned work well, NSAIDs, steroids, and colchicine. And there was nothing in, in terms of the data, head-to-head -head trials, that showed that anything was anything that anything was more effective than the other. There are clearly patient reasons that would make one choose one agent over another. Um, things like renal dysfunction or GI problems or GI bleeding may prevent you from being able to use NSAIDs. Um, steroids, if someone's diabetic or has other issues with steroid use, there might be issues with that. And some people may be intolerant of colchicine. But I think that the feeling was that for um, for efficacy reasons, all of them were equally good. One of the points that was made um, in the explanation underneath the recommendations was that really all NSAIDs are really quite equal on this, and probably for other things as well. There was no strong evidence that Indocin was any better than anything else, and I think we wanted to make the point specifically that it's not better because it's used a lot. And as you mentioned before, there's a lot of teaching that Indocin, because it seems to have a more rapid onset and is a fairly potent NSAID, works really well. But the problem is that it has the, probably the highest risk profile of any of the NSAIDs, whether it be renal dysfunction or GI upset, or especially because it tends to cross the blood-brain barrier more than other NSAIDs, it has a really high incidence of either causing headache or kind of head fuzziness or neurologic dysfunction. Um, and in my practice, um, I can't remember the last time that I actually used Indocin. In fact, I probably haven't at all prescribed it. The only time I've probably used it is if some patient begged it that nothing else worked as well as Indocin and I'd give them a low dose for just a few days. Uh, back to the colchicine issue, the classical teaching, as you had mentioned, had been um, to use colchicine, kind of blast people hard with it, and the, the classical teaching was give one dose of colchicine, which is 0.6 milligrams an hour, until either their gout got better or they had diarrhea, whichever came first. And the problem with that was that virtually everyone would get diarrhea within three or four doses of an hourly colchicine. And some studies were done that actually showed that people did just as well by giving them kind of two doses in the first day and then follow-up doses every for a couple of days or however long, we'll get to that in a few minutes, but that you did not need to blast people with so much colchicine in the first day to the point where they got adverse effects like diarrhea. And that's where the recommendation to come, which was there was no good data that high-dose colchicine was any better than low-dose colchicine in treating acute gout. I'll stop there for a sec. Does that make sense? Uh, absolutely. So let's, let's go through each of these uh, just to be a little bit more specific for uh, the audience. What non-steroidal do you usually use? If I came in with acute gout uh, and... Uh, saw you, I had podagra, and I really wanted some help, what would you prescribe? I would, if, 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 you, if it had been, if you had not taken anything yet, I would uh, potentially have you take uh, 
to Aleve twice a day. Okay, Aleve is uh, naproxen. naproxen. So Aleve is the over-the-counter form. So I would, I mean, if, if for some reason the person had some prescription naproxen, I would usually use the 500 instead of the 375, which are the two prescription doses, and I'd have them take 500 twice a day with food of naproxen. And if that really wasn't doing much over a day or two, I would have a very low threshold to um, – add on steroids, or quite frankly, at the beginning, I actually use a lot of colchicine too. So if there was no contraindication to colchicine, um, I would actually give people colchicine at the recommended dose now, which is to give 1.2 milligrams as a starting loading dose, which is two tablets together, and then later in the day, I think the, uh, the evidence or some of the studies showed you could take it even an hour or two later. I might give it several hours later, so they have a total of three doses in the first day, but I would not give it any higher than that. But one of the effective things about colchicine is that, especially if you catch the gout episode or attack early, um, and I don't know that there's great... Uh, there's no evidence kind of showing this, but I think that our clinical judgment tends to show that gout really responds quickly, early gout, to colchicine. And it almost can be a therapeutic trial that can really strongly suggest that what you had was gout. Pseudogout responds pretty well, but not as quickly as gout um, for that. So if, if you have somebody who has a hot podagra type toe and you give them colchicine and within 24 hours they are dramatically better, you have virtually ruled out anything else. Okay, so just let me make sure I have this. So you like uh, naproxen 500 twice a day, and you've had good success with that. Yes. Um, you sometimes give 1.2 of colchicine, and then an hour or two or three later, 0.6, but that's all the colchicine for today. And if they respond to that, that tells you it's probably uh, crystalline arthritis, either gout or pseudogout. Correct. When, you dis when do you use steroids? And it was interesting to me in the table, um, where I am, we've always used prednisone, but you don't even list prednisone. You list prednisolone and methylprednisolone, uh, at least the committee did, uh, as the corticosteroids of choice. Right. Um, well, you know, the, the, the tricky things that we have with the, with the clinical guidelines committee, and this gets at one of the core issues that we deal with, is, is the, the clinical guidelines committee following the ACP's kind of a protocol is to look at what the data shows. And so when the studies that have shown that steroids were effective used prednisolone or methylprednisolone, that is what we need to say works. Now everyone, and many people, at least in this country and different parts of the country, might use prednisone versus prednisolone, some of its clinical habit. But um, on the basis of what the studies actually showed, we're kind of, our hands are tied to show that. Um, and, and that really gets it, as I say, one of the core issues here, which is what's the purpose of the guideline? Is it to give the best practice advice on what should be done, which may go in between what data shows? Or is it to say this is what the best evidence-based studies show us works or doesn't work? And, and our guidelines committee has really kind of stuck to the latter. Um, and that's where sometimes there are conflicts or differences of opinion um, that these guidelines come to, because in some cases, there's not great data to tell us exactly what to do in a given clinical situation. 
And that makes it tricky and frustrating because um, somebody might read our guideline and say, well, this isn't really telling me exactly what I should do in a given situation. And the truth of the matter is, is that's because we may not have a study that gives us a great answer um, based upon what that clinical question is. So I've been told before that the advantage of prednisolone is that uh, prednisone, it, prednisone is a prodrug that has to be converted to prednisolone, and prednisolone is the active drug. I was always taught that it was fairly expensive, but as I read the table in the article, it's only 11 days for a 50-day supply of the 15 mil- milligram dosage, and since you're giving 30 or 45 milligrams, how many days, if you, if you were going to give prednisolone to a patient, how many days would you give it to them for gout? Yeah, you know, so whether it's whether it's prednisone or whether it's colchicine or the NSAIDs, um, there's not a great there's not great data on how long to treat. Um, I would say my personal practical uh, advice would be to usually treat for uh, a week or two with a tapering dose of the of the steroid, and some of that is more clinical judgment and what I've seen in practice. Many times people have been given things like you know the convenient Medrol dose pack that's used for so many things. Right. They basically take you know six five four three two one with a rapid taper, and sometimes. Um, that will cool things off very quickly, but you've removed the anti-inflammatory effect of the steroids so quickly that people will have a kind of a rebound flare as it comes down. So I tend to want to treat people for usually a 10 to 14 day course, slowly tapering down. And that's, for example, if it's their first uh, episode of gout or they have it infrequently, maybe once or twice a year, and I'm not worried that they are... um, really actively needing more prophylactic treatment if I'm going to be starting them on uric acid lowering therapy, which is a whole nother issue. So with the prednisone, so I like to treat for probably 10 to 14 days, gradually tapering. Um, Similarly with colchicine, if I think someone has an isolated episode for whatever reason, I'll give them a week or two, usually closer to two weeks of of colchicine, as, I, as we mentioned before, they take the loading dose the first day, and then I would typically have them take it um, once, I, I, pre, I usually have them take it twice a day for maybe a week, then I drop down to once a day for a week, and then I would stop it. Great, so, so that, that's really helpful. Uh, let's, let's go to uh, the third issue, and this is when do you put people on urate lowering therapy? What is What are the criteria? Because it's interesting here, the recommendation here, uh, which is very clear, is you don't give it after the first attack or someone with infrequent attacks, although infrequent is not defined. Correct. Um, but it also doesn't talk about the other situations in gout patients where uh, urate lowering therapy might be uh, absolutely indicated. And uh, the, you were at the guidelines committee. Why did they only address this and not the other uh, things? And what I've been told is tophaceous gout uh, should get urate lowering therapy and uh, uh, kidney stones that have urate in them should get uh, urate lowering therapy. And that's not mentioned in here. Well, so, yeah, so our our goal here was to address gout. It was not to address uric acid kidney stones. So that was kind of off the table just in terms of the studies and the data that we looked at. Although I think um, to some extent there's a certain logic that if somebody has uric acid stones and presumably they have elevated levels of uric acid in their urine that you want 
their uric acid to be lower because of that. Um, but to some extent, from the from the from the joint standpoint, um, and similarly with, with tophaceous gout, if someone has enough of a uric acid load within their body metabolically, what we tend to see is that frequently there is actually joint damage from tophi. I think what's less certain from the standpoint of actually prospectively following groups of patients or any sort of trials is uh, how much uric acid elevation do you need to get TOFI? And we know that the higher the levels, the higher the risk. But one of the big mysteries that we really have is why is there not more gout? We know that there are you know millions and millions of people who have elevated uric acid levels. The definition of that we'll get to in just a minute. And why, if there's so many people who have elevated uric acid levels, isn't there more gout? And it really is a great mystery. So while it's a risk factor, it's not the only thing. And so the idea that has been promulgated um, based upon some observational retrospective data that lowering uric acid below a certain target is the optimal strategy is not really supported by strong prospective data. Now, and that's a difference where the ACP said the data is not there, whereby we looked at a group of patients who were randomized to, you know, a certain strategy, which was what we call treat to target, get the uric acid level below six is the number, versus not treating them to target and just putting them on, you know, allopurinol or fibuxostat at some dose, but not really worrying what the follow-up uric acid level is. We don't have data showing that one strategy is better than the other. And that's why, to some extent, we ended up being kind of vague and uncertain in that. Now, um, the rheumatology community has, for the past probably 10 years, gone on some assumptions that getting the uric acid level below 6 makes a lot of logical sense. And it does make a lot of logical sense. Um, but the data showing it is retrospective and not as strong as one might actual, actually think. Now, the good news is I think with some of this controversy, and I think it may have been happening anyway, some better designed trials to answer some of these questions are in fact in the works. Um, but the big difference between the American College of Rheumatology and the American College of Physicians guidelines, so to speak, is really what's the data showing that you need to treat to target. Now, one of the points that was made in the editorial the, that you had made reference to, to treat or not to treat to target in gout, points at the fact that we have a certain amount of physiologic knowledge about uric acid. Now, we have physiologic knowledge about a lot of things that don't necessarily prove to be true uh, all the time. And one of the things that the clinical guidelines committee is concerned about at times is making assumptions that certain treatments or interventions are necessarily good. And, and something we always think about is we used to always think that estrogen was always good for women until uh, we finally had uh, the, the large trial that seemed to show that estrogen was not always beneficial and there were in fact harms. So merely making assumptions based on what we, what we assume is physiology or pathophysiology is something that we try to avoid. Now, the physiologic aspect of uric acid, which I'll touch on briefly, it's known that the um, solubility level for uric acid at normal pH and temperature is about 6.8. 
So presumably, if anyone has a uric acid level over 6.8, they are theoretically saturated or supersaturated. And so the question is, why aren't more people walking around who have a uric acid level of 7, 7 7.5 or 8? Why aren't they developing gout? Why isn't the uric acid precipitating out of the blood or out of the serum into joints or wherever? And the answer is we really don't know why, but it's not happening all that much. But we do seem to see that when people have higher uric acid levels, well, 10, 11, 12, they clearly have higher risks of gout. Um, but as I say, so, but a retrospective trial had seemed to show that after people were put on medications for their gout, those who got the level over when they were followed over a six to 12 month period, if the levels achieved were under six, that was where the frequency of recurrent gout tended to level off. And that's where this magical number of 6.0 came from. It really came from one retrospective trial. And um, I think that we were not comfortable with that kind of relatively limited data, although it makes physiologic sense, at making a strong recommendation that this was the strategy that needed to be adhered to for everybody. So, first of all, um, when do you start your lowering therapy just so, yeah, for so gout I, I didn't answer your question. So to answer, so so in, and this back when I was a fellow before we had this treat to target approach within the rheumatology community, the feeling was, you know, they're, we don't know what makes people have gout or not. If in fact somebody has limited gout, they have one or two episodes a year. Maybe it's precipitated by a. A uh, heavy weekend of socializing and a little too much shellfish and alcohol, which seems to acutely raise uric acid levels. Whatever it was, if somebody had a couple attacks a year, one or two, and it was and it was well controlled, you know, with whether colchicine or NSAIDs or steroids, so that within you know a week or two of treatment, you could get it under control. There was nothing that suggested back in the early 1990s when I was a fellow that people necessarily needed to be on long-term uric acid lowering therapy if you were able to control a couple of attacks fairly easily. If you were not able to control it with you know, as-needed treatments for a week or two and they were having recurrent attacks or they had TOFI, which really demonstrated that their uric acid uh, body burden was significant and potentially doing damage to joints, then the feeling back then was to treat them. At this point, I tend to have a low threshold if someone has more than one or two attacks a year to put them on uric acid lowering therapy. Now, some of it also depends on what is their uric acid level. So if somebody has had gout and I uh, they've had one attack and I measure their uric acid level several weeks later when they are back to their relative uh, equilibrium of uric acid, then I'll have a better sense of what their risk factors might be for future episodes. Uh, and I also made it, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to look at their uric acid level and say, is there something else that we might try to do to make it lower, which we have a general feeling is probably a better thing. So, for example, are they drinking too much? Maybe uh, are they on a thiazide diuretic? So some other optional uh, blood pressure medication might be an alternative. Um, are they truly eating a lot of shellfish or, you know, the bad diet foods? Um, that tend to, we think, raise uric acid levels, although data is not incredibly strong in how much diet impact can have, but that's also because I think some of those trials just haven't really been done well or designed well. But population studies looking at people with larger BMIs and who have certain dietary habits do tend to suggest at an epidemiologic level that those things are associated with higher uric acid levels. So if someone has more than, and the guidelines came down on that, we decided that if in fact someone has 
Kate has more than two episodes per year or problematic gout, as I mentioned reasons before, that at that point is worth having a discussion with the patient about potentially going on treatment. Part of the issue is if you're going to put someone on uric acid-lowering therapy, they got to take the pill every day. So you're, you're committing the person to a medication to take every day, potentially indefinitely, as opposed to episodic treatment. And I think uh, in this day and age, everyone seems to agree that I think we need to have more patient uh, involvement in that decision of whether to commit to that. So when you do that, uh, I assume you try allopurinol because it's so much less expensive than the newer agents. Correct. And uh, the way the table and the guideline says you're going to start at 50 to 100 milligrams per day and then increase but, but I'm trying to understand, uh, the rheumatologist would tell me, and uh, I've talked to some of the rheumatologists at my institution, and they're going to increase until they get the uric acid below 6. Right. right. Uh, if you follow this guideline, are you just going to say, okay, now I have you on 100. If you have two more episodes in the next year, then we'll go up to 200? Yeah, I think there again. We just I think the problem is the reality. There's no there's no data on really on how to guide us. And so the feeling was, if in fact you put someone on you know kind of the starting dose of 100 milligrams, say, uh, and then you have tapered them off of the prophylactic treatment, which everyone should get put on when they are started on these uric acid lowering therapies. Because people do need to realize, and I think most people tend to learn this, although I still see patients where they got treated inappropriately because they got started on something like allopurinol, but they were not also covered with either a little bit of steroid or NSAIDs or colchicine as a prophylactic. Because when you are uh, interfering with uric acid metabolism, when you're starting one of these medications, you actually physiologically seem to free up uric acid crystals into the circulation, which can precipitate a flare. So we want to cover people with a prophylactic treatment, and studies do suggest that that clearly decreases the rate of gout flares when you're starting the treatment. So after they had been on the treatment, allopurinol, say 100 milligrams for a month or so, I would then stop the prophylactic treatment, the colchicine or the, or the low-dose steroid or whatever, and then the, the guideline would essentially say, see if they have any recurrent attacks on that dose of allopurinol. That the data to monitor uric acid levels down to a certain target um, was just not there. Now, as I say, the rheumatologists are not comfortable with that and would say that based upon their experience that people clearly do better if their uric acid levels below six. The teaching has been there again without necessarily great data that if someone has TOFI their uric acid body burden is even higher and you might want to treat to an even lower target. There's no perspective data suggesting that. It will be interesting to see with the technology we have now and I'm not sure if anyone is looking at this whether in fact MRIs looking at joints and changes in joints as you lower uric acid levels will help support the fact that we truly decrease the risk of joint damage by pushing the uric acid level lower. We don't know that yet and that's kind of why we're limited in what we're saying that the evidence shows us to do. So this, is, this has been great. Um, let me see if I can summarize the, this last part. Um, I was always taught 
to give 0.6 of colchicine daily when I started allopurinol and as you suggested for a month to make sure that the allopurinol does not induce an attack. Does that sound okay. right? Yes, it does. And then the the debate, which is a debate that is based upon belief, really, because we don't have data one way or the other, is we're either going to put them on a low dose of allopurinol, 100 milligrams, and if they don't have any more episodes after we stop the culture scene and they keep going at 100, that's great. You, that That theory says don't measure the uric acids just let's just watch the patient if they start to have more episodes of gout they probably need more allopurinol correct the, the other uh traditional uh theory is let's check recheck the uric acid and if it's still above point uh, above six we're going to continue r- raising the allopurinol until we get the uric acid below six that's correct. Now, that would be yeah. just for someone who has recurrent attacks uh, I believe that many people would have a different decision if someone had uh, many TOFI or had kidney stones, that they'd work much, much harder uh, to get the, uh, the uric acid below six because you're trying to decrease crystallization and, and melt the TOFI. Uh, what you've done is you've actually taken these guidelines and given us some real good ideas about how to put the guidelines into practice, what we absolutely know, and where it's fuzzy, and I think it's important for all of us physicians to understand where the data are fuzzy, uh, and it's very clear to me that I'm looking forward to the studies of whether lowering uric acid below a certain level uh, is a way to prevent recurrent gout. So it's time for Bob's Pearls. What did I get out of doing this podcast and reading these articles? First, I have a much better understanding of how to treat acute gout. I had always used indomethacin as my non-steroidal. From now on, I'm going to use naproxen, either at 375 milligrams if I'm doing over-the-counter therapy or 500 milligrams, and each of these would be twice a day. For steroids, I'm going to give a week at a solid dose, maybe 20 milligrams of prednisone or or 20 milligrams of prednisolone, and then taper slowly over the following week. But the big thing I learned was that I was doing colchicine all wrong. I've avoided colchicine for many years because of the diarrhea. The data that supported this guideline shows that you can give 1.2 milligrams as a loading dose and then later on within about two or three hours give another 0.6 milligrams. That will not lead to many side effects and then you follow that up with 0.6 milligrams twice a day for the next week to two weeks. I also better understand the controversy about how to treat recurrent gout. Recurrent gout is defined as two or more episodes. We're struggling because we don't have great data on whether we should treat a target or not. The American College of Rheumatology and many gout specialists believe that we should get the uric acid below 6 and we should measure the uric acid as we start uric acid lowering therapy. American College of Physicians 
suggested that in the absence of data, we should give 100 milligrams of allopurinol, and then if they have two more episodes of gout, increase the allopurinol, but not recheck the uric acid. Because we don't have any data, we can't say whether one group is right or one group is wrong. We also heard that studies are in plans to try to do a better job of elucidating this important question. What the editorial told us was that regardless of strategy, very few people with recurrent gout are taking uric acid lowering. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I have. Thanks for listening. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.